0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Revelation uh, chapter uh, 11 and 12 and 13 we're going to cover today. We're in a series in the book of Revelation. Revelation. And uh, I've been generally covering a a chapter a week. Last week, we covered chapters 10 and most of 11. We didn't touch on on the last part of chapter 11, which which is the seventh trumpet. I'm going to start by reading that, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in again, as always. And uh, Jesus has so much to say to us as we go through this book. But anyway, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15, says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. First of all, for our children. And what a joy it is to do church with our kids and to disciple them. And Lord, uh, to show them some of the joy and fun that giving and generosity are. And Lord, we look forward uh, as we build this camp so that we have a camp to minister to them in the coming generations, Lord. I am praying that many of those children, Some of them are going to give their lives to you for the first time at that camp. Many of them are going to recommit their lives to you at that camp. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would take that little bit of money that those kids have sown. For them, it was a lot. In the grand scheme of things, maybe it was a little, but for them, it was a lot. I pray that you would take that money that those children have sowed and that we would reap a tremendous spiritual harvest. And then, Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation, and as we dig into it again today, would you awaken our hearts with love for you. And uh, and also, would you encourage us and give us faith for our lives this week? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So Revelation uh, 11 here, this seventh trumpet. We've been going through the trumpet judgments ever since Revelation chapter eight. And this seventh trumpet, as you can see, is actually a fast forward to the end, and Jesus has returned to earth. We see that here in verse 15 where it says "And the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ so that's that's the that's the final now don't get confused you might think well this is only the 11th chapter there's 11 to go there's 22 chapters in all so if jesus is on earth then what's happening in chapters 12 13 14 15 and on and again in revelation there is there's a general chronology of the, you know, in the series of judgments, you've got these seals and trumpets and bulls, But the fact of the matter is the whole thing doesn't just work all in time like that. And so the seventh trumpet is a fast forward to the end, and then when we go into chapter 12, we're going to go back in time again and then work our way back towards the end again. So just so there's not confusion, that's important. But the thing I want to point out here again, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of, Of our Lord, and I want to draw attention to this. This is something that Pastor Ray was already doing for years. That I've talked about uh, many, many times before, and I will continue to do so until I die. This is so important. I want you to notice that we are not going away to heaven to live in eternity in some kind of disembodied, soulish existence. That's not the hope of the Bible. That's not the hope of the resurrection. I want you to notice the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Jesus. The hope of the Bible, the Christian hope, the hope of the resurrection is not that we're going to float away somewhere, but that Jesus is going to come to earth and we're going to live a physical existence here on the earth, okay? That is the hope here that we see again in trumpet seven of these judgments. And I think that's just so important because, again, so many people have gotten this Greek idea, uh, which was very different than, than the Hebrew thought, but the ancient Greeks thought of the physical world as basically bad or inferior, and they thought of the spiritual world as being this invisible world that was superior to the physical world. And so they had this idea of souls. The souls needed to escape from the prison of the body, And you'll sometimes even hear Christians speaking like that. Just so you know, that's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible never talks about souls escaping the body because when God created the earth and he created physical bodies, he said, it is very what? Good. God likes physicality. The Greeks didn't like it and they talked about escaping the physical world to live in some kind of spiritual, nebulous kind of existence in eternity. The Christian faith does not teach that. We must be resurrected and we will live here on earth physically. Now, our resurrected bodies are going to be much better than the bodies we have now. We will not be able to feel sickness or experience sickness. We will not be able to feel anxiety or fear or depression. Amen. Amen? Right? This is going to be better, and, and the effects of sin will be taken out of the world. So in some senses, the, the world will be brand new, the new heavens and the new earth. But in another sense, They will be like they are now in the sense that they will be physical, but they will be vastly superior and beyond our imagination. Our hope is not to leave here and go somewhere else. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back. That is the hope of the Scriptures. That's the hope of our faith. Now, if we go ahead to verse 18, you're going to notice uh, three basic components of of Jesus, you know, this end-time plan of Jesus bringing his kingdom back to earth. Three basic components that you see repeated over and over in different ways throughout the book of Revelation. And we see them here. The first one is the nation's raged, okay? This is an important part of the reason why Jesus returned to earth is judgment and violence, the nation's rage. By the way, I don't have time to jump into it, but the nation's rage that is taken directly out of Psalm chapter 2, famous messianic passage. I don't have time to go there now, but you can mark it in the margins if you want of your Bible or in your notes. You can go and look at it this week. But that is where John is drawing on here. But the nations raged. This is really important for us to understand, okay? This is the condition of the human heart, and this is the condition of the nations now, and it's the condition of the nations when Jesus returns. And it's important for us to set this out because sometimes Christians get this this kind of theology that things are going to get better and better and better and better, and then Jesus is going to return? That's not. He's coming back, and the nations are raging. Okay? Now, I I get, you know, sometimes why Christians, you know, move into theologies like that is because we want to be positive, and we want to, you know, think positively. And by the way, as Christians, we should be more positive in the world, shouldn't we? I mean, we should, when we get up in the morning, we have a reason to be Happy. We have a reason to be grateful. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. We're on our way to heaven, which is actually on earth. It's not gone, right? But, um, but we're on our way to being in his kingdom here on earth. So I get that as Christians, we should be positive and joyful. We should be more joyful than the world around us. But taking that positive, grateful mindset to the extreme of believing that things are going to get better on the earth until Jesus comes is just not uh, biblical. So the nations raged that's happening now, and we shouldn't be shocked by it, when the nations and political systems and decisions within our own country are, you know, constantly against God, it doesn't mean we shouldn't stand up for justice. I mean, I'm going to be on that life hike again two weeks from now, and I, that it'll be my third year in a row because I really believe that babies should not be killed before they're born. And so we're standing up for that, and I'm standing up for that. I'm praying about it. It doesn't mean I'm fatalistic about things, and I hope that we can make changes here in our country. So we do that we don't get fatalistic but at the same time we realize that the nature of the human heart is such that the nations hate god and they will hate him right to the end and that's why when he comes back it's a violent returning the nation's rage which brings us to the next thing but your wrath came so the nation's rage we're going to see we see this theme throughout revelation the nation's rage and so that's why Jesus, when he comes back, he doesn't just show up at the door with uh, you know, a bunch of coffees. He's coming back on his war horses. as we're going to see, because the nations have rejected him, and they're fighting against him, and he will militarily conquer them. So your wrath came. That's part of the message of Revelation. It's part of the message of the Bible. And then it says this, and the third component here is, and the dead will be judged, right? And the time for the dead to be judged. These are all important. I mean, you're seeing core components here of the gospel message encapsulated here in the book of Revelation over and over and over again. The human heart is desperately wicked and the nations have rejected Jesus. Therefore, he will come back in wrath and then will come a time for judgment. Every human being on earth will have to stand before Jesus and give account for their life. Those who have received Jesus, none of us is perfect, but because we've received him, then he will forgive us of all of our sins, or he has already done that, and he will reward us a judgment, so it will, it will be, judgment will not be a terrible thing for us. But for those who have rejected Jesus, it will be a terrible thing. He says there at the end, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay. And this is actually part of the good news. Did you know that? Part of the reason the good news is good news is not just because of all the good reward we get to live with Jesus in eternity, but it's also what we're being rescued from. Amen? And as Christians, this is part of the, this is part of the motivation why we need to have an urgency to tell the world the good news. The good news is, yes, eternal life. That is the good news. And that's the main part. It's eternal life with Jesus. But it's also what we're being rescued from. I, I remember uh, in illustration, I'm pretty sure it was Ray Comfort, a few years ago I heard about a parachute in a plane, and I think it just captures it perfectly. If you were on a plane and you knew, somehow you just had some information, and you knew this plane is going to crash, and someone gave you a parachute, okay? Now, already, those of you who've ever flown on a, on a, on a plane before, you know... They're already not comfortable, and they already don't have enough space unless you're tiny, right? Now, someone comes up to you, and you know this plane's going to crash, and they give you a big old parachute. You're going to just put the parachute on. It won't matter that it's, you're not going to complain about the buckle that's pushing into your back or, you know, I'm even more squished than I was before. You're not going to complain about those things. You're going to be thankful for that parachute because you know this plane is about to crash, and isn't it true if you're a decent person at all and let's say in the back of the plane there's actually enough parachutes for every single person, aren't you going to go up and down the aisle and tell people, hey, would you, would you please put on a parachute? We're about to crash. Now, some of them might not believe you. We're not going to crash. It feels great. You look out the window. It looks fine out there. We're not going to crash. Please put on a parachute. Yes, we are going to crash. Please put on a parachute and you'll be safe. I don't want to put on a parachute. It's uncomfortable. Okay? and you go to the next person, and they say, well, hey, that parachute, that's good for you. That works for you. I'm glad for it, but I'm okay if the plane goes down. I got this plastic bag, and this plastic bag is going to save me, and you say, well, no, it's not just my truth and your truth. Actually, that plastic bag can't save you, right? Another guy says, I got a, I got a toothbrush here, and no, that's not going to help you in a plane crash. Would you please put this parachute on, right? So we would We would would want to put it on, and it would be okay that it's actually a little bit uncomfortable to have a parachute on, just like, you know, the human race is on a collision course with Jesus. The human race is on a collision course with Jesus. That will happen whether people believe in him or not. And he has provided a way for us, a parachute, if you will, a free, and it's free. You don't have to pay for it. You just have to receive it. And then you're saved you're not just saved for eternal life you're also saved from the crash you're saved from judgment in hell which is part of the gospel message that those who reject jesus will be judged in hell and we see all of that here that jesus's return to earth is going to be terrible for those who refuse his offer of salvation. We actually see here in Trumpet 7, some of you might be wondering, how does this have anything to do with the trumpets? Like, like you know, the first six trumpets were all these judgments. The first four were these terrible natural disasters, and then we had this demonic oppression we saw in chapter 9, and then there were these like terrible wars and stuff. Like, and then also we have Jesus coming back. Like, how is that one of the trumpet judgments? But I'm going to read you a little bit of chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 explains more of what this looks like when Jesus comes back. And the reason Jesus coming to earth is included in the trumpet judgments is because Jesus' return to earth is a judgment. See, the first six judgments that came on the earth were all Jesus working through intermediaries, working through other things to bring judgment on the earth. So he's working through nature in the first four. He's allowing demonic oppression in number 5. He's allowing more. He's taking off his protective hand and his judgment, but it's all coming through other things. In trumpet 7, trumpet 7, if you've rejected Jesus is actually the scariest judgment of the 7. It's Jesus coming to earth. In Revelation 19 it shows us what this looks like. It says, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Revelation 19 goes on to describe more. And this is Jesus returning. He's actually returning. Yes, for those of us who have followed him, it's, he's returning to reward. But it's part of the trumpet judgments because he's actually returning to stamp out resistance and rebellion to God. And it's an awful thing, it says in Hebrews, to fall into the hands of The living God. And that's why the seventh trumpet is also considered the third woe. We remember this from Revelation chapter 11. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Remember in the trumpet judgments, they're split up. The first four are really bad, but the second three are the worst because they're called woes. And trumpet seven, Jesus returned to earth for the wicked, is is considered one of the woes. Now, I want to stop here and just for a moment talk about the fact that Jesus, because we always have to balance this. And as a preacher, I always feel this tension we have to, I have to preach a really balanced view of who Jesus is. So first of all, it's important that we not just leave out the, the, his, the judgment side. We can't make God in our own image. We have to look in the scriptures and what does it say about God? Okay? At the same time, people can take these judgment passages and then they, they can make Jesus into a monster. Jesus is not a monster. He's not, don't view this like him coming back in wrath and crushing resistance. Do not think of this as Jesus you know, running all over the earth, indiscriminately killing women and children and oppressed people and poor people and slaves and stuff like that, that is not in any way the biblical description of Jesus' return. He's coming back to, to fight against the wicked and those who have rebelled or who are rebelling against him. But he's not coming back to just indiscriminately kill. If we go back to Revelation 11, I want to highlight that last, pat- that last uh, sentence again. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, uh, and those who fear, you know, both small and great, and for destroying, you see it at the end, the destroyers of the earth. Now, I know some, some people here might be tempted to put a modern spin on this. Oh, destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is like an environmentalist passage. I can, I can totally see people doing that with this, and going, oh, destroying the destroyers of the earth. It's the, Jesus coming back to kill all the polluters, Right? All the guys running too many coal plants and, and, and uh, dumping stuff into rivers. Now, again, Genesis is very clear that we are to be stewards of the earth. I mean, it's a, it's a sin for us to just waste, lay waste to the earth. It's a sin for us to just wantonly pollute and, and do terrible things to the earth. But that is not what this passage is talking about. This is not a Greenpeace passage, okay? When he's destroying the stories of the earth, the first century... Christians who are reading this, they don't even know about environmental movements. There is no such thing. When they read destroyers of the earth, they are immediately thinking of something. They have a picture in their mind. They have a picture in their mind, first of all, of the Emperor Domitian, who was a wicked, debauched leader, who oppressed not just Christians but lots of people who tortured, who lied. They're thinking of the tax collectors and local governors who taxed them so harshly that some of them would starve. They're thinking about the soldiers who would sometimes take girls from their families and and turn them into slaves if their parents couldn't pay their taxes. They're thinking of those are the destroyers of the earth. They do not have a picture here of Jesus coming back and just killing human beings. They have a picture of him coming back against the wicked and the oppressors, okay? That's the picture here. I think that's important. I actually believe, okay, and, and Revelation, this by the way is a huge theme in Revelation, And we'll see that when we get to chapter 14 and some of these other places, chapter 19. In Revelation, uh, when Jesus comes back, there's a real focus on those who have taken the mark of the beast. And we'll talk about the mark of the beast uh, yet as well, because I know lots of people have all kinds of crazy ideas about that. And we're gonna take the crazy out of the mark of the beast. It's one of my goals, okay? But anyway, one of the focuses is those people who have specifically worshiped the beast, that God's wrath is against when he comes back. I actually believe... And I'll, I'll defend this point more in Revelation 20. I actually believe there's many people on the earth who, who when Jesus returns, who have not persecuted Christians, uh, who have not explicitly, you know, rejected Jesus. They've been oppressed. They've been whatever. They've all sorts of things. When Jesus comes back, I actually think many of them will, be, will have a chance to repent at that time, okay? And I'll defend more of that when we get to Revelation 20. Um, but, in the end, I believe there's only, and, and this is, I'm just helping you have some proper thinking here about judgment. I really think that in, the, in eternity, I think there's only two groups of people. In eternity, I think there's two groups of people. See, at, and on, the one, on the one side, you're going to have people who absolutely love Jesus, and they're with him you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. And then there's going to be people who absolutely hate Jesus. Those are the ones cast into hell. And they don't think there's going to be any middle ground. And let me explain that to you. See, right now, we have all kinds of middle ground. You've got, you know, on, on the one extreme, and nobody, I don't think any human being is perfectly there, is, on the one extreme, you have wholehearted love for Jesus. And I don't think any of us is there yet. I think, you know, that's at the resurrection. But there's wholehearted, pure, passionate love for Jesus. On the other side, there's wholehearted hatred for Jesus. And really, the human race, all seven billion of us, we're somewhere in the middle. You got people who really, really love Jesus, and then you got people who love Jesus. And then you have people, they've given their lives to Jesus. They're his kids, but they struggle with all kinds of worldliness and and different things. And then you've got people who don't really know about him or who kind of just are ignoring or walking away. And then you've got people who are opposed to the things of God. And then you've got people who hate Jesus. You've got this whole continuum. I think part of what Jesus is doing in the end times is emptying out the middle ground. See, because in heaven, there's not going to be... Think of it this way. In heaven... There is not going to be anyone who just says, yeah, I like Jesus. You want to you go worship Jesus today? Eh, I don't know if today, maybe tomorrow. I'm going to tell you right now, there will be nobody like that in heaven. Nobody's going to be me about Jesus in heaven. You know why people are me about Jesus on earth right now? Because we have never actually fully seen him. When we actually meet Jesus, anybody whose heart is soft in any way is going to passionately love him. You won't be able to help yourself. It won't be like your devotions here on earth, which can sometimes be boring because our heads were so busy and we got worldly things. And then there's, there's we, you know, there's lies and there's wounded and there's all kinds of things that build up that keep us from really fully knowing Jesus here on earth. And so sometimes we struggle with our devotions and we think, well, I'm just not spiritual enough as I knew it being spiritual enough, when you see Jesus as he really is, there's no in-between ground. It's like, oh my goodness, why did I waste all that time in my life over with this stuff? You are the ultimate joy, right? Like Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 8, he says, indeed, I count everything. And this is Paul before he's even resurrected, so he's not perfect. But he at, least knew Paul, he at least knew Jesus enough to say this. Indeed, I count everything as lost. Everything I could ever want, everything I could ever dream about, everything I could ever have, every experience, every you know, traveling trip, every accomplishment, I count it all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus is so amazing that that verse is everybody, all of us who are with Jesus in eternity, We'll have that verse emblazoned on our hearts. It will be, and you won't have to work it up. That's how amazing Jesus is. And I really believe, so in heaven, there's nobody in between. I really believe that those cast in hell, it's the exact same thing, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. I do not believe anyone is cast in hell who is, oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. I wish I would have, I wish I I wish I could live with you forever. Anybody who would do that, do you know what Jesus would do? Ha! You're saved! If they could do that, he would for sure take them. Jesus is not casting anyone into hell who's like, I love you, Jesus. I wish I had known more about you than I would love you. No way he's throwing anyone like that into hell. Forget it. The only ones who are going into hell are the ones who hate him, and that's Part of the reason I really believe there's an urgency on us, the choices we make in this lifetime, and to tell people the gospel because by the choices you make in this lifetime, your choices are all either softening your heart more and more so that in the day when you see him, you will love him, or they are hardening your heart more and more and more so that on the day that you see him, you will reject him. And so we need to tell people because there's people all over in here and we need to tell them, Receive Jesus when to tell them the truth. So that they're not hardened by lies and deceit. So that in the end, we find them like in Revelation. So many people are actually, literally fighting against Jesus when he returns. And hating him. And hating his word. And hating the truth. So that's trumpet seven as Jesus returns to earth. Then we have chapters 12 and 13. And I'm, again, I'm, we're gonna, it's the forest. I want to look at the forest. I don't want to get lost in the details in the trees. I think sometimes it's just so helpful to get an overview of some of these chapters. And in many ways, a number of the commentators I like to uh, look at and see their thoughts, and uh, many of them talk about chapters 12 and 13 being the theological center of the book. And I actually think that's true in many ways. I think chapters 12 and 13, some of the theological core of what's happening in Revelation flows right out of Trumpet 7, right out of Jesus coming to earth. And so the, you say, again, why not just end the book after Trumpet 7? Jesus is back on earth. This is great. Stop. No need to have the other 11 chapters. Well, John and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, no, no, you need to know some other things. So we fast forwarded to the end. His kingdom is coming to earth. That's, so now we know we're going to win. Awesome. But then now in chapters 12 and 13, he's got to explain something. Why are things so bad now? And why as Christians do we have to suffer? And so in chapters 12 and 13, we're going to read about a a cosmic, a massive war that is going on between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. That's the whole point. Chapters 12 and 13 go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Chapter 12 is going to show us what's happening in the spiritual realm. That doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that we don't see it with these eyes. Chapter 12 is behind the scenes. What's happening with Satan and the angels and God? And then chapter 13 shows us how what's going on behind the scenes is played out on the earth, the things that we can see. They go hand in hand because the two are linked. Okay? What happens in the spiritual realm affects what's happened. You see the effects in the physical realm. I'm going to use an analogy. This analogy falls far short. If you take this analogy too far, it'll take you to weird places. So I use those caveats. If you think about the spiritual realm, the physical realm, you can think about them a little bit in terms of chapters 12 and 13. If you've got Jesus and Satan playing chess, that's sort of the the behind-the-scenes, and the the chessboard is planet Earth. So the spiritual battle that's going on is being played out on the Earth, okay? Now, that analogy breaks down very quickly in so many ways, okay? First of all, Jesus and Satan are not evenly matched, Okay, so don't, don't even think about it. We see that in Revelation. Jesus wins. He wins clearly. He made Satan. So there's not, no issue there. The second way that it breaks down is human beings are more than just pawns. On Judgment Day, nobody will be able to say, hey, I did it because Satan made me do it. That won't hold on Judgment Day. However, the book of Revelation is very clear that there's these powerful demonic forces and the things that happen, the big political things, the wars you know, terrorism, some of these huge trends we see on earth, Revelation actually tells us those things are, they are being moved by powerful demonic forces. You can't take out the spiritual element. Revelation won't let us do that. So Revelation 12 is behind the scenes. I'm going to read it to you now, a big chunk. And Revelation 13 is what we're going to see on earth as a result of what's happening behind the scenes. So Revelation 12, if we start in verse 7 says this, now, war arose in heaven, okay, so there's the war, Michael and his angels, now, Michael, it's not, he, he uh, pops up in only a couple of places in, in the Bible, one is in the book of Daniel, and, and John is drawing heavily on the book of Daniel in, chapter, uh, 12, in chapters 12 and 13, the Bible doesn't give us much information about him in the first, in first century Judaism, they, they believed that God had these seven really super powerful archangels, and Michael was one of those archangels. So it seems like the, the, the Bible writers probably think that too, but it doesn't explain it exactly to us. But he's some kind of powerful angel. So now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So now this is something we don't see with our physical eyes. It's real, but we don't see it. We're not going to see a big guy with horns and a bunch of, in the sky, flying around, lightsabering each other with, you know, no, okay? We don't see it, okay? But it's real, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil. By the way, that's the connection to Genesis. Now, of course, we all grow, you know, many of us grow up in the church. You grow up with some kind of Christian influence here in this area. So we just automatically, when we read in Genesis, we just automatically assume the serpent is Satan because, of course, that's just... But do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that until here? Until you get to Revelation, it doesn't tell you that the serpent is Satan, okay? It's just part of what we grow up with, and this is where we get it from. So, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, okay? So, so far, again, this is still behind the scenes. So keep reading. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth. Okay, so this is going to have implications for planet earth. This spiritual battle we don't see will have implications for earth. Okay, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Now, I think in my next message I'm going to come back to 12 and 13 and just fill in some details. But in this message, I just I just really want to just give the overview so you can understand its place in the book and you can understand what's going on. Um, But so for now, you can just the woman is very likely, most likely, some kind of reference to the nation of Israel or faithful Israel. Okay, but the Jewish people. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, who is Jesus, obviously. And then now we see this. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now again, this is still behind the scenes. We're going to see what this looks like in just a moment when we get to chapter 13. But you're not going to see a great horned creature with a pitchfork stomping over the earth and trying to get Christians. And yet it's true. He is furious. He's going to make war on Christians and we're going to see the results. But it's not, this part is still behind the scenes. Okay? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. By the way, who are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and and keep the commandments of God? Christians, okay? Now, the next verse, we get to chapter 13, we're going to see the physical outworkings, but I just want to stop here for just a moment on those two things. It's really interesting to me that this is how John defines what a Christian is. Because very few Western Christians... And I've said this not just in Revelation, but actually very few Western Christians, people who've grown up in the church all their lives, actually define Christianity the way the Bible does. And I always find that very interesting. Most of us, if we were going to define Christianity, if we are going to say the devil's making war on Christians, well, we would just say he's going to make war on Christians. And of course, they weren't really using that term yet. But we would just say, those, so if we weren't going to use the term Christian, we would just say, he's going to go make war on those who believe in Jesus. See, we have come to uh, basically define a Christian as someone who just believes in Jesus. But, and by the way, that's super important, we see it here, those who hold to the testament of Jesus. It's really important. I don't want to take that out. You have to believe in Jesus to be a follower of Jesus. But the Bible does not reduce Christianity to just believing in Jesus. What does it say here? On those who keep the command, and and by the way, there's no or in the middle, it's an and. It's two things. On those who keep the commandments of God and believe in Jesus. Now that's interesting. What are the commandments of God? This is John writing this in the first century. He is uh, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' disciples and he's also a thoroughly Jewish Jew, when he writes the commandments of God, do you know what he's talking about? Basically, the Ten Commandments and all the moral code that goes with them in the Old Testament. Okay, he's not talking about circumcision and all those things. It's not about the moral code in in the Old Testament. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not define Christianity as just someone who believes in Jesus. To him, a Christian is more than someone who just believes something in their head it's someone who cares deeply about righteous living. A Christian is someone, yes, you have to believe in Jesus. Yes, 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 that's in there. I'm not taking that one out. It's and, not or. A Christian is someone who believes in Jesus and who cares very deeply about integrity. That's a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Absolutely, yes. And that also means that every day I care deeply about integrity. In terms of the things I say, I don't like to talk behind people's back or slander them. I don't like filthy talk to come out of my mouth. I, I care, a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus and cares deeply about telling the truth and being honest in their business dealings. A person who loves Jesus is someone yeah, who loves Jesus or follows Jesus is someone who believes in Jesus, yes, and cares deeply about sexual purity. Who cares deeply about honouring their leaders and honouring their parents. And you just go through the Ten Commandments. That's that's a Christian. Someone who cares deeply about right living. And then, of course, none of us is perfect. Who keeps the commandments of God perfectly? And that's why us Christians are so darn happy. Because every morning we get up and we remember, oh, I'm forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. He's so amazing. And he forgives us again today. And guess what? I care deeply again today about righteous living. I care deeply about righteous living because that's what a Christian is. You're following Jesus. That's what you care about. And that's who Satan hates. Satan doesn't just hate people who believe in Jesus. He hates these people who love Jesus and love righteousness. This group of people who resist him. So, next statement. Now we're going to see behind the scenes how this looks in the physical realm. And Satan stood on the sand of the sea. And now we just move right into chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this was the part now where we going to explain to us what we see. Are we going to see a beast rising out of the sea? Well, it's imagery. We'll get there. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard... Remember these three animals, its feet were like a bear's, so a leopard, a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power, and it's thrown of great authority. Now, a lot of people, Christians at this point, they're reading their devotions, and they're going, I give up. What on earth is going on here? What on earth? Okay. Chapter 12, I kind of got, and now a beast is coming out of the ocean, lion's mouth, bear's feet, leopard, Skim to the end of the chapter, let's get to something more applicable. What on earth is going on here? Well, again, John is drawing heavily on the Old Testament and the Old Testament is going to explain to us what this is and then you're going to see what we're going to see. This is all coming out of Daniel 7. Now, we could put Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 side by side and I could show you parallel after parallel after parallel after parallel after parallel. Like, there's so many, it's crazy. I'll just show you one little passage and then the explanation because Daniel 7 actually tells us what this is. So let's go to Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. So Daniel's having a vision. And visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts. So remember in Revelation 13, we saw a beast come out of the sea. Here in Daniel 7, we see four beasts coming up out of the sea. Different from one another. The first was like a lion. And had eagle's wings. Remember the lion in Revelation 13. And behold, another beast, the second one like a bear. Remember, Revelation 13 has bear's feet. None of this is an accident, obviously. After this, I looked at another, behold, another like a leopard. So the beast is, remember, in Revelation 13, the beast is like a leopard. So John is taking his beast, is a, is a combination of these beasts in Daniel 7. Okay, and we could look up a ton of other parallels, very fascinating stuff but I just want to skip ahead a few verses in Daniel 7 and just see what he says this beast is. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are. He's going to tell us what they are. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So these beasts are not demonic creatures, they're not fallen angels, they are kings, they are political entities, kings, governments, nations. They're they're real things. So in Daniel 7, he sees four wicked empires, four kings with these wicked empires rise out of the sea. In Revelation 13, we see one beast, so it's a wicked empire. Now, specifically, Revelation 13 is foreseeing ahead to a specific empire that's going to rise in the days just before Jesus and Jesus is going to conquer it. But remember what I've been telling you throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation shows us patterns. It's not just pointing ahead to something in the future. It's showing us patterns right now. Already many antichrists have come, John said, right? Already there have been many beast empires. So what does it look like when Satan is at war with Jesus' kingdom behind the scenes? What do we see on earth? We see wicked empires, and we see wicked political systems come into power to oppress and tyrannize. Particularly, they will focus on Christians, oftentimes Jewish people as well, but then they will, they will persecute all kinds of people. But we look around the world today. There's always spiritual forces behind these things. I sometimes wonder why more non-Christians, why more atheists don't think about this. Why, throughout history, are there so many evil Nations and evil kings. Why? Why would people want to do that? How do they come to power? How do they stay in power? How do you have a North Korea right now, three generations on of the most wicked leaders you can possibly imagine? And, and you, you look there, and the, the, the Christians are so few there, but it's not even just Christians. They tyrannize everyone. It's absolute tyranny. It's hellish. It's awful. How does that happen? How does. You know, how do the Chinese maintain power, the Chinese government, and they oppress everybody, not just Christians, but they're really going after Christians now, but they oppress, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people in their country. How does that happen? How does a Joseph Stalin come to power? How does a Hitler come to power? How do these things happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Satan is at war with God's kingdom. We don't see them fighting in the air. What we see is political systems and nations in the present. That's what we see in the physical. And so we go back to Revelation 13, and let's see what this beast does. So, what is this beast? It's representing. Now, again, Revelation is looking ahead to a specific one in the future. A a specific empire will come along, and a specific king that will fulfill all of the you know details of Revelation 13. But in the meantime, we see this kind of thing already. Now, what does this beast do? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, that's a, that's a really sobering passage. It's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And again, sometimes we have to be reminded, as Christians, sometimes in the West, we get this sort of idea that if you just have enough faith, if we just pray, God will always give us victory. Yes, he does. We always get the victory ultimately. Sometimes it doesn't look like victory to us. Sometimes, like, in God's eyes, Jesus going on the cross was victory. But he goes to war with the saints and conquer them. If you go and look at the church in a place like North Korea today, you know what that has happened to the church there? It has been crushed. There are not many Christians in North Korea. You know, there's there's certain, you know, I think some of us in the West, we're a little bit glib about persecution because we just think, hey, whenever they persecute the church, the church just grows like crazy. And it is true in places. Like China, it just grows and grows and grows no matter how much persecution. But then there's other places. You go to Turkey. Turkey, many centuries ago, before Islam came along, was almost entirely Christian. And now it's less than 1%. The church has been crushed. So... And we see that here. Make war on the saints and conquer them. Oh my goodness. That's, that's Satan at work. That's how you see Satan at work. And there's this crushing and grinding. That's him at work. You don't see him. What you see is this persecution. But there's more than just the crushing. There's, there's the blasphemy. Blasphemous words and blasphemies against God. Satan doesn't just work with persecution and oppression. This is his other big tactic. And it's just rip-roaring slander and blasphemy against Jesus, against the Word of God, against God's law. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Anyone ever pay attention to the, to the media or the news, the twisted picture or movies, the twisted picture of like this book in many places already is considered to be a hateful book. I mean, we look in here and we see the love of Jesus. And the world looks in here, and they see a hateful, bigoted book. How's that possible? That is the slander of Satan at work. And this is what we see in the physical world, is we see a river of slander sweeping our culture and sweeping across the world, making Christians look bad, making Jesus look bad, making God look terrible. That's the way Satan works. That's what we see in the physical realm when Satan's at work in the spiritual. Now... How are we to respond to this? And now we come to verses 9 and 10, which are, you know, probably if you could just summarize the call of the book of Revelation to Christians, it really comes down to these two verses. I'm going to leave a statement off the end and I'll add it in just a second. But Revelation 9 and 10 is sort of the, you know, climactic call of the book of Revelation to Christians. How do we live in a world like this? Here's what it says, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Now, there's another piece that's coming here that's really important, but I just want to stop here for just a moment. First thing I want you to see is Jesus is not going to shield us from all suffering. He's also not always, now, we continue to pray. This is not about fatalism. We never get fatalistic. I'm going to be on that life hike in a couple of weeks. We're going to pray at the prayer summit. When we pray, we pray for freedom. We pray for more freedom. We pray for a government, and the Bible tells us to do that. It's not about fatalism. But ultimately, we need to have an understanding that Jesus will not always answer our prayers for safety and freedom. He will not always answer them yes. And what happens to our Christianity then? What happens... To your faith? What happens to our faith? What happens to this church family when it comes to a place where Jesus does not say yes to our prayers for more freedom and more safety and more protection? Okay? Well, Jesus has a call for us, and this is what he says. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Two things. Endurance and faith. Endurance faith. What are you going to do when, what what do we do as a church? You know, one of the things we have to understand is, do you know that Jesus on Judgment Day is not going to judge success here at this church by attendance numbers and giving numbers? You know what he's going to judge our faithfulness as a church by, or judge success, sorry I should say, is by our faithfulness. So what happens if in the future something happens and we get, you know, crazy media attention or something again, and attendance starts to go down because people are afraid to go here, is that going to mean that we're failing at our job? What happens if stuff gets passed and all of a sudden, you know, like in many countries around the world, there's no kind of charitable status for giving to a church. They don't want you to give to a church. What would happen if that goes and giving goes down? Would that mean we're failing at our calling? I'll tell you what success is. Success is enduring and faith. Endurance. We make it to the end. And faith. We don't just grit our teeth and endure. We have faith. Faith in what? I'm going to tell you two things. Faith in what? Because it's not just an endurance of grit your teeth and get through. We're actually supposed to be joyful, turning the other cheek and showing the love of Jesus while we endure. How do we do that? Two things we need to have faith in. It's a faithful endurance. First, we win in the end. We win in the end. That should make all the difference for how we endure. Okay? Okay. And the only way I know how to explain, I was using this last night, I did not know my mother would be here this morning, Um, but many people, including her, she's actually here at church today, which is really awesome, first time uh, in a while, she's been backsliding, but no, no, she's been, uh, she had surgery. But, you know, lots of people, I know her, you know, my grandmother, many others here in church we know have had knee replacement surgery, okay? And so a number of you will no doubt know people have had knee replacement surgery, okay? And it's... uh, it's, it's an awful surgery. Like they, they literally, they, they cut your leg off here and they cut your leg off here and then they put ends on it and give you a knee. I, I hope none of you here is about to get one this week or in the next month or so. You might just want to cover your ears, okay? But, so it's, it's horrific. They just, they, they cut it off, okay? Now, um, and then recovery is really, really painful, okay? Really painful. It takes a long time to recover and it's horrifically painful. Now you say... Why on earth would anybody want to go through something like that? Like, here's, the, here's what's going to happen. They're going to cut your leg off in a couple places, then they're going to put it back together, and you're going to experience horrific, horrific pain for a long, long time. Who wants in? And yet people are signing up on lists. They're, they're in, in, they, they get on a list because they want to get this surgery done. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you can, you can endure anything if you know there's something good on the other side. Isn't that true? I'll I'll, I'll sign up for, you know, a couple of months of really bad pain and intense, you know, working your way back to walking if what it means is before I could hardly walk and I had lots of pain. I'll go through really bad pain so on the far side I can get my, my mobility back and have no pain. I can endure a lot to get to that other side. Isn't that true? That's the same thing the book of Revelation is telling us. Rather than getting bitter... And ticked off at God and compromising and giving in, we are constantly painted this picture, Jesus' kingdom is coming to earth. The plane is about to crash. You can put up with an uncomfortable parachute for a while. It might be uncomfortable being a Christian, but you can put up with it because you're being saved. We win in the end. And it's not just persecution. For right now, we don't have persecution anything like what a lot of people in the world have right now. But the one who must go into captivity, to captivity he goes. The one who must be slain with the sword, to, to the, with the sword he must be slain. You've been given a life. And some of you spend too much time wishing you'd been given a different life. You wish you'd been given an easier life. You wish you hadn't gone through this or you wish you hadn't gone through that. But you know what? The one who must go to captivity, to captivity he must go. You've been given the life you've been given. So what are you going to do about it? You know what Jesus is saying? Endure. Instead of being bitter about it, endure. There's something better on the far side. The life you've been given, you've been given, now live it out and trust in Jesus and be a witness to those around you as you do that. And you know, there's a second thing. It's not just that we win in the end. You know, the second thing that's really amazing is he's already in control right now. If I go back to that knee surgery thing again, and when you go to get that Double amputation, you don't just go to your neighbor's wood shop and say, would you just get your black and decker out? I'll put my leg up on here, and can you just quickly do this? Now, essentially, that's what they're doing to you at the hospital, but, but you don't just have hope in the end. You have hope that the surgeon is in control at all times, yes? I'm willing to go through this because I trust that this surgeon, now hopefully he's not, you're not his first one, right? hopefully you're number three or four hundred. You know, enough that he's got experience, maybe not so much that he's already getting bored, right? But anyway. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're willing to go through horrific things if you know that the surgeon knows what he's doing. That's faith. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You have faith in two things. In the end, it's all going to be worth it. In the meantime, he knows what he's doing. Look at this. And the beast was given a mouth, given. And it was allowed, allowed, it means someone's in charge. It's really painful, it's really awful, but it's not the beast that's in charge, it's Jesus who's in charge. 42 months, it's opened its mouth, also was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Yes, terrible things are prophesied here in the book of Revelation, and we see terrible things on the earth, but we know who's in control, and we know who wins in the end. Would you bow with your heads at me and close your eyes, and let's give the Lord Jesus a chance to minister this truth to our spirits. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us today? Lord Jesus, some of us have had to go through a lot more stuff than others. But Lord, your call to all of us is to endure and be faithful. And Lord, we don't want to just do the grit your teeth and endure. We want to do the be thankful in all things, endure. Thank you that you are in control, even right now, like a surgeon. You are in control. And thank you that in the end, it's all going to be worth it. I pray that you administered each person here this morning. If anyone is afraid of the future, pray that you would take that fear away. We are in your hands. If anybody is in the middle of something right now that makes them want to give up and get bitter, I pray that you would touch them with your truth as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.